The Gospel, a basic truth, is sponsored by One Jump Ahead, a nonprofit sport ministry with a focus on strengthening families on our journey together. They provide a family oriented sport with Christ centered values and a unique look into how jump rope goes hand in hand with the gospel and our daily walk with Christ. Check them out. Go to onejumpahead.org. That's onejumpahead.org. Greetings. Welcome to another podcast episode of the series entitled The Gospel of Basic Truth. Today we're going to look at the testimony of Martha. Actually, you can't look at Martha without also looking at her siblings. So I'm sure you know this story, but Martha, she has a sister, Mary, and a brother, Lazarus. They live in the village of Bethany, and that is a little less than two miles outside of Jerusalem. Now here's where it gets interesting. They actually ran a bed and breakfast. Okay? They were in what we call the hospitality industry. Let me explain how all this works. And to do that, I really need to give us some background. In the law of Moses, God, <clears throat> through Moses, commands that every Jewish male who is, or Hebrew male, Jewish, who is able should come to uh, where the ark is. Uh, first it was a tabernacle and then a, the a permanent site was the temple. And there were three pilgrimage festivals a year that every, every male was expected to come. No matter where you were in the world, you were expected to come to the temple three times a year. There were two in the spring and one in the autumn. The first one in the spring, and of course, I can never pronounce Hebrew correctly, but it's pronounced something like Peshach. And we would say Passover. So this is a pilgrimage feast that is going to celebrate the final plague in Egypt when the angel of death killed all the firstborn of uh, men and animals, but passed over the houses of the Hebrews if they had taken a sacrificial lamb, killed it, put its blood on the, uh, the doorpost around the house, and of course then they ate the meat of the lamb. If the angel saw the blood, it passed over and did not kill the firstborn. Now we're living in an agricultural society, and so there is always an agricultural aspect to all of these festivals. So while there were other holy days and other festivals, these three that I'm talking about were ones that every male had to go to the temple. And not only were they celebrating the Passover, commemorating it, but they were also celebrating the harvest of barley. Barley was the first of the grains that was harvested during the year. So you'd bring some of your uh, barley that was harvested, and that would be part of some of your sacrifices. Now, the law of Moses said seven weeks later, there was another festival that you should go to, and it, this one is pronounced Shabbat. And it literally means weeks, because it was seven weeks. So <clears throat> the first <clears throat> pilgrimage, Passover, and then seven weeks later, you would go to the festival of weeks, or Shabbat. Now, the Greek Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, I should say, 
you know, they always had problem with Hebrew, like I do. And so instead of uh, saying Shabbat, they simply used the word for weeks. And if you take, or not for weeks, I'm sorry, but if you take these seven weeks, seven times seven is 49, and so you count, and so you'd have to be there on the 50th day. And that's where we get the word Pentecost, which is how the Greeks were 50, the festival of 50 for them. And this was the harvest of wheat. So wheat would have been harvested later in the season than the barley. Now we keep going and we get into the autumn. And this third festival is Sukkot. And it means tabernacles or tents or booths. By the way, this agricultural celebration was for the first fruits. So if you think of all the fruit that would be harvested in Israel, it would be in the fall. And so the first part of your harvest, the first fruits, you would bring as a sacrifice. Now, the underlying word is tents or booths or tabernacles because it's honoring how God supported the Hebrew people for 40 years wandering in the desert. As you recall, <clears throat> under Moses' leadership, uh, the Hebrew people, and best we can tell, there's probably between three and five million of them, came out. They went to Sinai. They got the law. They got a few things straightened out. It took about a year. And then <clears throat> Moses was told, okay, it's time to go into the promised land. But because of the report of giants, the people say, we don't want to go in. So God says, okay, you don't have to. But you're going to have to wander around in the desert until you're all dead. And then your children, who will be adults by then, will then take, take the nation in. And so for the next 39 years, God leads them in a giant circle. So for 40 years, they are living in tents. Now, yes, that was punishment, to be sure, a judgment. And yet at the same time, it it, was, it showed God's provision and care for them because God gave them manna, bread from heaven every morning, made sure they always had water and sometimes meat. So this was a festival to celebrate God's goodness even during the period of, of their judgment. How many people would show up? How many people are going to show up for these festivals? Well, I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2. So in the New Testament, what we call the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit falls on the believers, and they are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the sign, and the big sign was that as they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they suddenly were able to speak in known languages that they did not learn. This, these here in this chapter are not ecstatic utterances, all right? These are not the languages of angels. These are known languages. How do we know that? Because the book tells us so. We start in verse 5, chapter 2. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude, they came together and they were bewildered because now all the believers are coming out into the streets and they're sharing the gospel. But each person hears that presentation of the gospel in their own native language. And all of these people who are there for the festival, okay, of Pentecost, Shabbat, they're all going, what's going on? Aren't, aren't these Galileans? You could always tell a Galilean because they had a thick accent. Um, 
So depending on where you are in the country, you can always tell somebody else's accent. So these Galileans uh, had their accent, and yet now they're suddenly able to speak <laughs> very good language in somebody else's language, which they have not learned. And then there is a list of the people who are there. Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Persia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We, we hear these men telling in their own languages the mighty works of God. What does this all mean? I wanted to read you that list to give you an idea that we have people from all over the known world. So you'll have people from, obviously, Jerusalem are going to be there. People in Judea, which is the West Bank of the Jordan. It's up a little bit from Jerusalem. Then you go all the way up the Jordan River. And in the north, you've got the Sea of Galilee and all the towns and cities that are up there. And, of course, what's in between is Samaria. Those guys aren't coming. But so you're going to have a lot of people who are Jews from Israel coming. But you also have uh, Jewish people from who are living in other countries. So how many people, all that to say, how many people showed up for one of these festivals? Friends, it was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands, according to the historians. There are some estimates that on some of these festivals, they got up to nearly a million pilgrims would show up. So now you have a logistic problem. How do you house and feed hundreds and hundreds of thousands, maybe nearly a million people three times a year? Well, that is where this hospitality industry came about. So within a walking, you take a radius, a circle, and within about a five or six mile radius of Jerusalem, you draw a circle, all of the towns and villages in that area basically became part of the tourist industry. And so all these people uh, would feed, the pilgrims would come, they would stay, they would get fed dinner. In the morning, they wake up. Now, of course, they're paying for this. In the morning, the host would feed them breakfast, give them a little happy meal so they could take it. Uh, because let's face it, Jerusalem is tiny. And so how do you feed a million people? There's not that many McDonald's there. I'm being facetious here, trying to make a point. How do you feed a million people when you have a tiny capital city? So we do need to pray for Jerusalem. It was supposed to be here last week, but we didn't go. With all the stuff that's going on there, I can tell you, I was looking forward to it, but for health reasons, we we're, were not able to go. Now, twice that I've been to Jerusalem, you have an opportunity, if you would like, you can walk on the top of the wall that surrounds Jerusalem. The wall today is bigger than it was in Jesus' time. My wife and I have walked it twice. It takes 45 minutes. It is a tiny city. So during the festival, you have hundreds of thousands of people all around Jerusalem staying in, you know, one of these bed and breakfast and coming in during the day. And then, at, you know, when you get late afternoon, when it gets about dusk, then they would walk back to where the bed and breakfast was. So we are talking about one in, that was Bethany. What's interesting is it's south of Jerusalem. Okay, so we'll come back to that. 
Jesus and his disciples come from Galilee. And yet, they don't stay in a village that's north of Jerusalem. They have to keep walking extra. They actually walk south of Jerusalem. So they got to walk some extra miles. And they're staying at this bed and breakfast run by Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The hospitality industry for these three festivals was extremely lucrative. They took care of so many people and they were paid so well, you know, that that took them through the rest of the year. And we'll see that that, uh, this family was actually wealthy, very wealthy. Now, anytime you went to Jerusalem, I mean, you could go there for business or for whatever reason, outside of the festivals, it was the same drill. You would stay in one of these bed and breakfast in one of these villages or towns within walking distance of Jerusalem. Now, we first come across Mary, Martha, and uh, Lazarus in, in Luke chapter 10. Now, I want to say in all likelihood, this was not something that the siblings got together and said, hey, let's go buy a bed and breakfast. Undoubtedly, this this inn, if you will, I like bed and breakfast, I think it's a little more descriptive, was probably in the family for several generations. They would have gotten this from their parents. All right, I'm in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, and this should be familiar to many of you. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him to her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teachings. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen a good portion which will not be taken away from her. Do you know a Mary and Martha? Martha, clearly, I I will say to you, is the oldest, the older sister. Why? Because it says, as we first read the text, she welcomed them to her house. I believe the bed and breakfast was given to her by her parents. Okay, Mary gets something else, and we'll look at that a little bit later. She is in charge. Now, running a bed and breakfast during a festival has got to be max stress. So when Jesus was there, he had himself, his 12 disciples. We know that the Apostle Paul says that the Apostle The apostles' wives often went with them when they traveled. We know in the Gospels there were a group of women, all right, uh, including Mary Magdalene, that followed the disciples and Jesus wherever they went in their and that during their ministry, and supported the disciples and Jesus out of their own money. So you've got a group of women who who are also going along. So how many people are in this party? Three dozen. So if you're running a bed and breakfast, and let's say the festival lasts for a week, you are doing at least three meals a day, time all that. You're doing at least 100 meals a day 
for a good seven days. There is a lot you have to think about. So to say she's serving, yes, she's serving. But she is preparing the food, getting it all together. Um, there's a lot of work that goes into this. I can just see her. Lazarus, we're running out of mayonnaise. I need more hamburgers, okay? Go down to a local store and get... You get the idea. If she is going to successfully run this, there are a lot of things going through her mind. And that's what Jesus says. You're distracted because you're, you're thinking about all these things you got to do. Obviously, she did it well. The point here simply is, Martha is the doer, the thinker, okay? The, the planner. She's always organizing. And, and that, that, that's kind of a head trip if you're busy organizing. Now, Mary is the younger sister. <laughs> I think as we first read this, you know, you'll be in a small group or something, and they'll read this, and they'll say, which, which sister are you more like, Mary or Martha? Well, nobody wants to admit to being a Mary, but the truth is there are a lot of people who are Marys. And we'll see this continually as we go through the story, but Mary, if she thought about it, would say, oh yeah, I got to go help my sister because this is what we do. But she's taken by her heart to go there and sit at Jesus' feet and listen. So we will see as we go along, Mary processes everything through her heart. She's more the, the passion, the heart, the, the emotional person. And Sister Martha is the one who, who does the thinking and planning. Now, I actually know these two uh, women. Uh, it's my aunt and my mother. My Aunt Joyce, uh, there was two, two uh, children in, the, in their family. My aunt was the oldest, and my, obviously my mother was the youngest sister. Uh, and the two sisters, their families lived next to each other. So we grew up, you know, you know, constantly in and out of our house or our, our cousin's house. So knew, knew, knew the sisters, obviously knew my mother and my aunt very well. And as children, my aunt always organized trips for us. I mean, whatever she was involved in, it could be Cub Scouts, it could be 4-H, the button club, whatever it was, sooner or later, she'd be the one running it, and everybody was happy to let her do it, constantly planning and organizing. And my uh, cousin, uh, I talked to my cousin uh, at a funeral here just a little bit ago, and she said, yeah, when we were kids, she said, we used to come over to your mom's house so we could get away, and mom couldn't find us because she'd, she'd have some job for us to do. My mother, on the other hand, was completely opposite. Uh, she was not a good planner. Uh, it totally Max stressed her out. She was a person of emotion, a person of heart. Okay? She cried easily, but very much processed everything through her heart and her emotions. Again, to me, these are very real people. Now we are going to see, and we'll take one by one, we're, we're going to go through some of the stuff and then we'll come back. So first we'll do Martha, then we'll do Mary, and then Lazarus. So now we go to John chapter 11. John's gospel, there are only seven miracles. Only seven miracles. And John doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. What are they a sign for? To prove that Jesus is who he says he is. God come in the flesh. And so it starts, the first sign is turning water into wine. And then each successive sign gets more extravagant, shows more power and glory. 
And it culminates in this seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus, raising some from, someone from the dead. All right, I'm now going to read uh, <clears throat> some of chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said to his disciples, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then he waits. Verse 5 says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Obviously, Jesus and his disciples would have gone to three festivals each year of the three years of his public ministry. So he would have gone there at least nine times. We know from Luke that um, when the men came to the festivals, they often brought their families. And and we see that uh, in, in Luke when Jesus was 12. So I suspect that this is a bed and breakfast that many people from Nazareth would go to. Jesus had probably been to this bed and breakfast even before he started his public ministry. I, I think he knew Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He loved them. I, I, I think he knew them for a long time. Now, when Jesus heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are are you going there again? Jesus answered, yes. And he says some cryptic things. And after saying all these things, Jesus says back to the matter at hand, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, "Uh, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover and wake up. Jesus had spoken of Lazarus' death, but they thought Jesus meant that um, Lazarus was taking a rest and sleep. So then Jesus tells them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Believe what? Believe the sign as to who I am. But let us go to him. And then Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with Jesus. So earlier, and they had been in Judea, and he he had said some things. We'll talk about that in a moment. And so that was blasphemy, and they were going to stone Jesus for blasphemy. But Thomas says, You know what? If they stone him, they'll stone us. Let's go with him. Now, when, reading verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Okay, got to stop here for an editorial comment. It doesn't say anything in the Bible about how long a soul, spirit, if you will, stays near the body after the person is dead. 
But in rabbinical Judaism, uh, they had come up with this rule that a spirit of the dead person stayed around the body or the house for three days. But by the fourth day, the spirit would be gone. So knowing this, Jesus waits for four days because Lazarus is not dead. He's dead dead. All right, His spirit will be gone. So this, this will have a, a big effect. It's not like, okay, you know, the little girl dies and he goes in and, and she uh, is given life again. Or, or the, the son of the widow of Nain, you know. Um, in the law of Moses, you had to bury a body within the day that it died. Well, that was important. So these people hadn't been dead that long. This one is different. He's dead dead. Now I have to say <clears throat> another editorial comment. The Jewish people that we know today, I, I can guarantee you, they're all, if they practice, they're all some form of what we call rabbinical or, or Talmudic Judaism. And so they had rabbis going way back to Jesus' time who, who wrote and said things and these end up being um, later codified. And then we got the Mishnah and, uh, and a few other things which make up the Talmud. And so this is a practice that Jesus criticized. And the people who did it uh, were the Pharisees. The Pharisees eventually, after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, they ended up forming what we would say is rabbinical Judaism today. So they made up their, their own rules, which Jesus always criticized them. You make up your own rules, which disagree with God's law. Stop it. Now I have to say there are uh, people who are descendants of Jacob who practice what is in the Old Testament, but they, are, they don't practice Talmudic Judaism. Now, those are all the ones we know. Um, so we have the uh, Anites and the Karaites, and, and there are places in Israel, uh, Ashad being one, where just about everybody there is, is part of a sect that doesn't follow all these, this rabbinical teaching. By the way, in Jesus' time, the Sadducees didn't follow all this stuff. And there's another group, which would be the Essenes. Uh, this was where the Dead Sea was. They were very much against uh, this kind of stuff. So they would say, and John the Baptist clearly was in the scene, and, and of course, uh, John, the apostle who wrote this, this gospel, you know, obviously had been taught uh, in, in the Essene way of thinking. I just point that out because it would have been important for the people there that Jesus waited the four days. Now, continuing in verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is not a criticism, folks. It's a statement of fact which Jesus himself said, you know, I'm glad I wasn't there because God's glory is going to be shown through his death. 
And then she goes on and makes it pretty clear she's not criticizing. She says, but even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Again, it's not a criticism. It's not saying, oh, would you raise him from the dead? That's not what she's doing. She's acknowledging, yes, you have the power of God to do this. And even though it didn't happen this time, it's not because you don't have it. You do. So she believes in Jesus. Now, notice how Jesus deals with her. This is the, the thinking person, okay, who spends a lot of time in her head. And Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha responds, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Friends, wow. She knows her Bible. She knows her theology. That comes out of Daniel chapter 12. Again, the thinking person, and he deals with her on that level. Right? She knows her stuff. Now, I do believe she was probably the oldest of all the siblings. And so I'm sure dad made sure that, you know, got to teach somebody. I'm going to start with Martha. So she had a good education. She's a smart person. She was a good organizer. Then Jesus said to her, and I'm going to read the whole thing, and then I'm going to come back and make a comment, several actually. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I'm going to go back just to that first sentence and part of it. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now here, friends, is where the English kind of fails us. We hear, I am the resurrection and the life. We think the point of what he is saying is that he is the resurrection and the life. Yeah, that's true. But that is not the explosive statement that he is making. It's the first part. He says, I am. Now, this is the English. Let's go back to Exodus. Moses is in the desert, uh, taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. He comes by the burning bush that is not consumed. He goes over to look at it. And God talks to him through the flame, tells him to take off his shoes. He's standing on holy ground. This is, this is a theophany. Anyway, he says, I got a job for you, Moses. Yeah, I know you're 80, but I want you to go back to Egypt, you know, where they tried to kill you. And I want you to lead the, my people, the Hebrews, out of Egypt. And it's going to be hard. And you're going to butt heads with a pharaoh. Uh, and, I, and I want you to bring them out here. And Moses gives his five famous excuses and eventually says, okay, I'll go. And then he says, okay, Lord, when the Hebrews say, who told you to do this? What shall I say your name is? Now, in the English translations of what the underlying Hebrew there is, typically we will see the words, I am that I am. Again, that's an English translation. So what God actually said to Moses was a name, and it's four letters. In Hebrew, there are only consonants. There are no vowels. So this is the covenant name. This is the name that the Hebrew people will know me by. 
we are in a covenant, a contract, or we will be once, we, once you get back to Sinai here. And that's when you get the Ten Commandments and everybody agrees to what the covenant is. And we've got the first five books to read what it was. And this is like in a family, we have special names for our family members. Richard might be called Dickie, okay? Almost like a nickname. Now it's more formal than that, but simply you, the Hebrew people, are getting a personal name that you can call God. So those four uh, consonants in, in Hebrew, nobody knows how to pronounce it. About 200 years ago or so, Roman the- excuse me, German theologians decided to add their vowels. And they came up with, guess which word? Jehovah. Well, that, that was a German attempt. And the Jehovah is often included in, in a lot of our Bibles. Today... Most scholars believe that those four letters would be pronounced, here you go, Yahweh. Now, you would think that this is a special name, right? So that the Hebrew people, now Jewish people, would call God Yahweh. But they don't. Certainly not today, and they didn't back in Jesus' time. Because one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. So you should not take this special name, Yahweh, in vain. Because if you do, that's blasphemy, and you should be stoned. Okay, so that's something that Jesus has said earlier, why they wanted to stone him. So not only does John give five, excuse me, seven signs to show that he is God come in the flesh, John quotes Jesus seven times saying publicly, Yahweh, I am, I am God. This is explosive. And we don't catch it the first time we read it because it's in English. We we don't understand the, the significance. Now, in our Bibles, if we're reading the Old Testament, and if you see the word Lord, L-O-R-D, in all capital letters, in fact, that is the word Yahweh. So Jesus is saying to Martha, Yahweh, I am God. I am the resurrection and the life. Well, if you want a memory verse, there's a good one. And then he goes on to say, whoever believes in me, even if he dies, yet he shall live. And that's exactly what's going to happen to Lazarus. Lazarus is dead, yet he's going to live. And then he goes on to say it a little differently. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. If you believe in Jesus, who he is and what he did for you, okay, you will never be dead dead. You will be, you will, you will be with Jesus in all eternity. So there, there is a, quite a statement of the gospel here. But we haven't gotten to Martha yet. So here's Jesus telling us what the gospel is. Now we go to her response. Again, this is a very thinking response. So Martha says to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. That is her testimony. And it, there's three points that she makes here. And again, we, we have to go through the language differences here. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are now the Christ, that's a Greek word, the underlying 
Hebrew word is what we pronounce as Messiah. You are the one that the prophets told us about. You fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecy. You fulfilled the law of Moses perfectly. Uh, you are going to be the suffering servant who, who dies for the iniquity of many. That's the first point. That's what all that first point is. I believe that, he, she says. And I believe that you are the Son of God. You are God come in the flesh. And the third point is, and I believe that you are here in the world to do God's will, God the Father's will. Remember, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one in essence, yet they have three different functions. All right? God the Father creates, and yet he always does it through the Son. All right? She's saying, I got that. You are here to do the will of the Father. This is quite a testimony. It's a testimony of a thinking person. Now we're going to go and look at Mary. By the way, the first time we saw her, right, instead of helping when she should have been, she's listening to Jesus. She's making a heart decision, right? Now we're going to continue on the story of the raising of Lazarus. I'm in verse 28 now. When Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling you. When Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to Jesus. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in a place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with Mary in the house consoling her saw that she got up quickly to go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to see where Jesus was and saw him, catch this, she fell at his feet. Okay? It's like worship. And she said to him the same thing her sister said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And at that point, she stops talking. And it says, when Jesus saw Mary weeping. And the Jews who had also come with her, also weeping. The text says, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. We'll take a look at these words here. Again, English <laughs> fails us. The underlying Greek here indicates when we see the words deeply moved that Jesus was angry. He was having an emotional response. He was angry. Now, who was he angry at? Mary? No. The Jews? No. He was angry that there was death in the world and how much people suffered when a loved one died. He, he is angry with sin. He is angry with Satan because he sees the torment that people in grief have when they lose a loved one. And then Jesus said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And now we have verse 35 in chapter 11 of John. Shortest, the shortest sentence in the, in, in the Bible. Two words. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how Jesus loved Lazarus? But some said, could he not have opened, could he 
not, uh, well, excuse me, one more time. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also not also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. We're going to stop there. Notice the different way, the different way the sisters are. Martha is a head trip, and so Jesus responds to her that way, but not Mary. Mary's a deeply passionate, emotional heart person. And so Jesus responds to her in that manner. He, he doesn't give her a mini sermon, okay? Uh, you know, kind of what he did to Martha. He simply cries with her. Friends, wherever you are, Jesus comes to you the way you are and, and how you relate to things. To Martha, he comes with words and thoughts and teaching, because that's how she understands and responds. But to Mary, he cries with her. He, he shows deep emotion. All right, so they're at the tomb. It's a cave. There's a stone against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Obviously, the dead body is decaying. There's going to be a very strong odor. Notice once again, the only one who has authority here to move the stone is Martha. Again, I believe she is the older sister. Then Jesus said to Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Notice what happens. So they took away the stone, which means Martha said, I believe. She believed what Jesus said, and then she acted on it. Take away the stone, even though the smell is going to be terrible, right? She believed Jesus, and she acted on it. Again, this is a saved person. We heard her testimony, and we see her acting on it here. Now, Jesus lift up his eyes and said, Father, obviously God the Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Okay, here's the sign coming. And when Jesus had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out. Bunny hopped, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped in with a cloth. And Jesus said to those near him, unbind him and let him go. We are not done with Mary. Again, we're looking at two different people here, okay, Martha and Mary. So now we're in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. It is six days before the Passover. So the Passover commemorates the angel of death going over the homes of the Hebrews who put the blood of the sacrificial lamb on their doorpost. In six days, Jesus will be the Passover lamb. And if we are under his blood, we will escape being dead, dead someday. We will have life, life with him. All right. Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany again, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him. Now, two of the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, 
give this story. They, they have some different details. Matthew and Mark are identical, word for word. And as we have said in a prior episode, Matthew took, copied, about 75% of the book of Mark and put it into his gospel uh, along with a lot of other stuff. So the other two renditions are the same, and they tell us that the dinner in Bethany was at the house of Simon the leper. Okay. Now, we are not told earlier in any of the Gospels where Jesus went to Bethany and healed this guy named Simon who was a leper, but clearly he was now healed because they were having a big dinner at his house, and you would not be at the house of a leper, right? Because he's unclean, and you don't want to get this deadly disease. So why is Simon the leper giving a, a dinner in honor of Jesus? Because Jesus healed him. We are told also in the account that uh, the, other, the other two gospel accounts that Lazarus was there, laying there at the table next to Jesus. We will come back and look at this again when we look at Lazarus. Okay. Now what is this next sentence, you can read that quickly and pass by it. You probably shouldn't. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. This is not Martha's home. Martha, what are you doing here? Friends, Martha is always serving. And why is she there? Because Jesus is there. If she serves the food, she's going to be near Jesus. Now, in our politically correct culture, we'd be appalled, but women would not be at this dinner. That's just not how they did it. Okay, if you were eating with your, your, your family, sure, everybody would be there, but that, that's not what this is. This is not a party where you'd have women. That's not how they did things. So the only way Martha is going to be in the room is if she's serving. And I can just, you know, imagine the conversation. So, Simon, you're going to give it. Give a party. Yep. Yeah, okay, okay. I'm serving. Uh, okay, Martha. You know, nobody's going to argue with Martha. And uh, because she wants to be near Jesus. But somebody else wants to be near Jesus, too. Now, notice what she's doing. She's doing what she knows. She's serving the food. Again, these would... Remember, they're not sitting at a table. They're actually lying on the floor. So the food is in the middle, middle of the room, in dishes. And then the men would be reclining, laying out. I think it would be very uncomfortable to eat that way, but that's how they did it. Um... When we were in the International Student Ministry, uh, I got to eat with uh, the Indian uh, uh, friends uh, several times. Now, I, I knew what to expect because someone told me, but you don't sit at the table. They spread newspaper on the floor, move the table back, and everybody sits on the floor, on the newspaper, and you eat with your fingers. Okay, So different cultures do different things. That's just how they did it then. Women were not invited to eat. That's not what's happened here. Martha wants to be near Jesus, so she serves. Now, verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. 
this next sentence. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. This is classic John. Now, if you listen to our first episode, John was everywhere. He was a witness to just about every... He is the best witness in all of human history to the, uh, the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he adds this personal touch. You see, only an eyewitness who was there would say, and the house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. The other two accounts tell us that it was enough wages for one man for a year. So just think about, if you could have your yearly salary, that is how much this nard was. All right, let's go on for just a second, and I will come back to it. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray Jesus, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had charge of the money bag for the disciples. And Judas used to help himself to what was in the money. He, he stole money out of this, uh, the money bag that they had. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. The other two accounts also make it clear, a little clearer, Mary was anointing Jesus' body for burial. Let's talk about this nard. Nard is made from special trees that only grow in northern India. This perfume was used for certain things, but, but largely it was used to anoint a body because the perfume was so strong. You wanted to mask the smell of the decaying flesh. All right. Very, very expensive. You just don't go down to Costco and buy this. Now, the scholars say to us, you know what this was? This was Mary's dowry. This is the youngest daughter. Clearly, her father gave her this as her dowry. And what is she doing with it? She opens it up and she anoints Jesus' body. What has she just done? She has said no words. She has given Jesus everything she has. From this moment on, I don't know how her life's going to go, but she doesn't have a dowry, friends. She's not going to get married easily now. She doesn't care. She gives everything to Jesus and she acts on it. And she shows something else. She has faith. You know, Jesus has been saying to his disciples and, of course, vicariously to all the women who were following them and supporting and take caring, taking care of them, he kept saying, I'm going to die, okay, you know, and ri rise in three days. I'm going to die. You know, the disciples heard him, and no doubt the women heard him, but didn't really believe it. Mary believed, and she acted on it, and she gave up everything. It's sort of like the parable 
of the treasure in the field or, or the pearl of great price. When you find that pearl, that treasure, you give everything you have to get it. Okay? Just as I am. Take me all. And the most valuable thing Mary has is her dowry. And she shows she believes in what Jesus says. It goes on further in the account and says, When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on the account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. I told you, four days, this is saying something. And so now people want to come to see Lazarus. So now the chief priests had to make plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on the account of him, what Jesus did, many Jews were putting their faith in in Jesus. What is the testimony of Lazarus? Well, I mean, Martha was easy. She told us. We've, We've got the memory verse there, all right? Mary shows us by this incredible act um, of belief and faith and acting on it. Lazarus doesn't say a word. Now, let's go back to when he's in the tomb. So, I asked this question. It's a rhetorical question. If you're dead, you still have free will, okay? When Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, did Lazarus have the opportunity to say, no, I don't want to? Probably not. Probably if Jesus ordered you to do something, you'd do it. But here's the point. Lazarus, even though he is, if you will, beyond the grave, his spirit is no longer there. Wherever he is, he hears the voice of Jesus and he obeys it. I don't think Lazarus, my wife seems to think he was probably the youngest, even younger than Mary. I don't know. I don't think he was a thinking guy. I think he was a guy, and I don't think he was terribly emotional. He was the kid brother. He wasn't a teenager. I'm sure he was an adult. But he, you know, he was the guy that every time Martha needed some more mayonnaise, she sent him out. Lazarus, uh, we got a lot of people here. Did you empty the chamber pots this morning? All right. Uh, he, He just did what he was told. He was a regular guy. All right. Not particularly thoughtful, not particularly emotional, but he heard the words of Jesus, he believed it, and he acted on it. Now, one more thing about Lazarus. People are getting saved, and he isn't saying a word, but they're getting saved because of him. He is exhibit A. For the testimony of the gospel, okay? Because Jesus showed that he was God come in the flesh because he raised Lazarus from the dead. He is an exhibit of God's power and just by being there, having obeyed God's word, people are coming to Christ. Isn't this an amazing family? No matter where you are, and I think all of us hearing my voice can probably say, if we were honest, that we were like Martha or Mary or Lazarus. And so the good news is, wherever you are, Jesus comes to you on that level, and he, he reacts, okay? And you show your faith and belief, 
You know, it's different for different people. Obviously, Mary, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty dramatic. Jesus had been telling his disciples, and again, of course, the women would have heard it that were traveling with him, that he was going to be killed, and then he was going to rise on the third day. Now, these women who had been traveling with Jesus for who knows how long, the entire three years, a year, but it was a long time, you know, got to know or at least listen to what he was teaching the disciples. They heard that him say he was going to rise again. And yet on Easter morning, some of these women, including Mary Magdalene, gathered together spices, perfume, to go to the tomb to give Jesus' body a proper burial. By Jewish counting, that Easter morning would have been what we'd say the third day. Even though they heard that he was going to rise, they went anyway to go anoint the body. Isn't it interesting? Two women that were not there. Mary and Martha did not go to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus because they knew he wasn't there. They believed. Dear Lord, I praise you and thank you for this marvelous story. And as we dig into it, we can identify and and just what a blessing that wherever we are you come to us and we all have a testimony i pray father that we would all be an exhibit of your glory working through us to bring glory to god and that through looking at us others would come to faith lord i thank you in jesus name amen mm-hmm.